The Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, a new Ishmael Jones novel, a Bain Books debut, and stories of ancient aliens. Plus, we continue our ongoing audiobook serialization of Timothy Zahn's Cobra, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour. It's a pleasure to have you along. I am Bain Associate Editor and your podcast host, David Afsharirad. This week, Griffin Barber sat down with John Van Stry about his Bain Books debut novel, Summer's In which, depending on when you are hearing this, is either out now or will be shortly in trade paperback. We're excited to have Van Stry write for us, and we're sure readers will be pleased as well. But first, the news. December is here, bringing with it the Bane December hardcover and trade paperbacks. Let's take a look. First up is Haunted by the Past by Simon R. Green. When Lucas Carr goes missing, seemingly without a trace, from Glenbury Hall, an old country manor house turned hotel, it falls to Ishmael Jones and his love and partner in crime, Penny Belcourt, to solve the mystery. The pair soon find that Glenbury Hall has a reputation for being haunted, but Carr's disappearance may have as much to do with the mysterious organization Jones and Belcourt and Carr work for as it does with the Hall's past. Ishmael and Penny have to work their way through a series of mysterious clues and misleading suspects, uncovering secret after secret before they finally arrive at a truth that no one suspected. The problem with history is that it's not always content to stay in the past. Next up, we have Summer's Inn by John Van Strye, which you'll hear about more in just a moment. Fresh out of college with his ship engineer third class certificate, Dave Walker is forced to take the first berth he can find, the Iowa Hill, an old tramp freighter running with a minimal crew and nearing the end of its useful life, plying the routes that the corporations ignore and visiting the kinds of places that the folks on Earth pretend don't exist. Between the assassins, the criminals, and the pirates he needs to deal with, Dave is discovering that there are a lot of things out there that he still needs to learn. But there's one hard lesson he learned long ago that he's being forced to remember. How to be ruthless. And finally, we have the anthology Worlds Long Lost, edited by Christopher Rocchio and Sean C.W. Korsgaard, which we will be featuring on the podcast soon. We were not alone. The farther we push into the universe, the more obvious it becomes. The signs are everywhere. Canals and pyramids on Mars, old roads on the moons of Jupiter, ruined cities on worlds about the nearer stars. The galaxy once teemed with life, or so it seems. Which begs the question, what happened to it all? Would these all-new stories explore the ruins of lost civilizations, solve ancient mysteries, and awaken horrors from beyond the dawn of time. That's Haunted by the Past by Simon R. Green, out now in hardcover, and Summer's End by John Van Stry and Worlds Long Lost, edited by Christopher Rocchio and C. Sean C.W. Korsgaard, both out now in trade paperback. Hi there, I'm Griffin Barber, your host for today's edition of the Bain Free Radio Hour. Few authors have more fascinating biographies than our guest today, John Van Stry. He's an Air Force veteran, an engineer with some of the aerospace industry's most prestigious names, been a private contractor on special projects, government included, and a lifetime, lifelong writer. He found the time to establish a thriving indie career with stories across the genre. Summer's End, the novel we're here to talk about today, is the first in a new series. Hello and welcome, John. Hi, how's it going? Pretty good, pretty good. So I like to ask the hardest question first. What, for you, was the coolest aspect of Summer's End? Um, that's a tough one. You know, it's like asking a mother which of his children, which of her children she likes the most. Um, but the world, I really like the world. 
um, or the universe it's in. I wanted it to be near space. I didn't want it to be, you know, a star system, you know, regular science fiction. Definitely want it to be hard science fiction. And I want to get into some more of the nitty gritty aspects of, you know, for the people who work in this. Yeah, so some of it's still, you know, kind of normal for everybody, you know, like just living on planet Earth. There's a lot of day-to-day -day stuff that we all take for granted. But then you have the people who make everything work or make everything run, you know, they keep things interconnected. And those people have a different life because they see a lot of different things. They go to a lot of different places. Um, the idea for the world that, okay, you know, we're a couple hundred years in the future, Gravity is fully understood. It's been conquered. So we have gravity drives. We can get constant acceleration drives, which means the solar system has become a much smaller place. And if you build one big enough, you can move anything. Right. So there was a big diaspora. People went and they grabbed all the asteroids and planets and moons and or just built stuff from scratch. And in a lot of cases, they moved said asteroids. Nobody's allowed to move moons anymore. There's a little problem with that. But other than that, um, so you have anything you can think of, and it's all over the place because, you know, the solar system is pretty huge. People don't understand the vastness of scale involved, which means that you're living out someplace where no one knows who you are. Your little society can be whatever weird idea or great idea you happen to come up with. So it gives a lot of opportunity to play on things. So... The vastness of space, yet also kind of the small uh, uh, neighborhood that you might be in uh, is being one of the cool aspects of it for you. And how do we got there, I guess. Uh, so did, you didn't didn't sound like you quite stumbled on that aspect uh, or more that you kind of as a natural outgrowth of your, your background, which is, uh, if I can say so, is really impressive with the uh, aerospace industry stuff and that kind of thing. So. Uh, or, or did the characters or the world building kind of dictate what the story was going to be for you? Well, the world building is where I started. <clears throat> and I was actually, I could probably dig this conversation out because this happened. It was going on between me and a couple of people on my Patreon. I said, you know, I'm looking to do this and here's some of the things and we're kicking ideas back and forth. And someone threw up the idea of, I think it was a Dyson sphere kind of thing where everybody would be living on the surface and how big that would be. And it's like, yeah, but, that's a bit out there. And I started thinking, well, wait a second. What about everybody can just terraform asteroids to whatever they want? And if you've got constant gravity, well, you can put gravity plates in. And there are some ideas from short stories and stuff that help percolate some of that out as to how some of this could work and how you could do it. Um, and a lot of it is just from what I've seen, you know, the, the world, interpersonal interactions, my being out in the world, things I've seen, that helps start delivering a lot of the socially, social economics, socioeconomic, whatever the word is, of the, everything, how things interrelated, how things intertied. I've read a lot of history, so I understand how a lot of that goes on because history is always great. It tends to repeat itself, or at least it carries a tune. Right. And, <laughs> You can go back through all those things and, and figure out and look at past stuff. So it, it kind of, once I had the world and I, then I started populating it in my head. And then once I had to populate it in my head, okay, what's the story I'm going to tell? And Dave Walker um, was, and I wish I could remember where I came with the name Walker from, but he kind of came along when I started saying, okay, this is how, this is what I think the earth will be like in two or 300 years where I, I see society present trends. Yeah. I think society is going more or less to what's in the book, unless something major comes along because I've looked at history and the stuff before. Right. And then it just kind of built from there. Once I had my character and where he was and what he was doing. So uh, along those lines, which character in Summer's End surprised you? You know, it's kind of a toss-up between Dot and Casey, the girl he marries. I think that's her name. I, I got. Yep, yep, that's it. Yeah, I have I, I have a cheat sheet up on the side here, but I have to scroll through to see it. Because uh, Dot started out, it, Dot is very much based on a real life person in many ways. Um, 
And it was funny because I gave her a copy of the book uh, on Saturday when I was out visiting my friends in Wichita Falls because she's a pilot and she has a lot of technical experience and she's got a technical degree and she's done a lot of high-end technical work. And did you lose me? My camera blinked out for a minute. Okay. Just as long. Internet here is sometimes problematic. We're on a tower. Um, and she and so the character talks in that way where sometimes they'll come up to you and the when you're wrong about something or you're being really stupid and they'll smile and say things in the most cheerful way when so, you know suddenly you realize that I'm in trouble. <laughs> the, the bless your heart. <laughs> Worse than that. <laughs> and and then it's like as I was as I as that character grew, I realized Dot needs a dark past. Dot needs to have a lot more going on that anybody realizes. Right. You know, and I, I have a short story and then they never got back to me to press on it or it would have finished it about how Dot ended up on the ship. I don't want to spoil exactly what Dot is, you know, or what their past history is. The short story tells a lot. But, you know, that's, that's one of the characters. Casey kind of surprised me because she was a bit of a throwaway character at first. And... Once once I, I figure out a character and I put him in my head, I start letting them run because I, I have a little idea of who they are, what they are, what they're looking for. And, you know, it's just what happened there wasn't exactly expected, you know, with her and Dave. Um, it drove the book along well, but, you know, that book wasn't heavily plotted. It was loosely plotted. I knew certain things where they were going and stuff, but every once in a while you get hit with a, an unexpected thing that happens. Right. You know, it's like the piracy thing that happens was going to happen, but it didn't happen where I expected it to. It kind of took a life of its own. And after that, it took a huge left turn there for a little bit until I figured out exactly what was going on. Neat. So the interesting to me because I, I did appreciate Dot. Uh, she reminded me of a sergeant that I had that, you know, that she was the epitome of carry, you know, walk softly and carry a big stick. You, you never knew how much she knew uh, about what was <laughs> going on, and, and when when you had messed up, uh, she would let you know in un no uncertain terms that you'd messed up, and if you showed a willingness to correct, uh, course correct, and fix it, uh, then she would allow you the opportunity to fix it but don't make that mistake again. <laughs> and that was yeah. what I drew from uh, Dot as well. I, I did enjoy that, uh, those interactions between them and that, that uh, air of mystery never hurts any character. Uh, and uh, maybe we, uh, we, you can suggest that uh, to Tony that you put the short story up on uh, Bane.com and maybe we get that, get it up there. I need to finish it and then I'll send it in to her. Um, oh. At this point, because when, they said they wanted a short story, but like I said, they didn't get back to me. So I had other things to do that dragged me away from getting back to it. It's half right. written. Right. But I also have another short story I want to write about. Um, I, hopefully I can say this without giving away too much of the story. But when Crow basically says, I owe you. Yeah. I want to write that. Yep. Yeah, that was that was one of those kind of, hmm, all right, what's going on here? Cool. Yeah, and, and the whole thing about that is the fact that the character has no idea what the hell Crow's talking about. Right, and and right. It, you've established what I, what I liked about this, too, is that while Dave isn't your typical unreliable narrator, he does have some things that he lies to everybody about. Oh, yeah. Except for, except for one or two people, including, and he lies to the, the uh, reader, the person that he's narrating to, uh, just because he's got to make sure that he covers all his bases when it comes to push comes to well, shove. He's not lying so much. He's just leaving things out. Yeah. <laughs> right. um, so you talked a little bit about how Dot came to be. What about Casey? How did she, because uh, she, you said she kind of surprised you because <clears throat> you were thinking she was going to be more of a. Uh, well, at first she didn't even exist. It wasn't until um, they hit the, um, man, I'm getting really bad on names here. Until they what what uh, damn Sirius? It, Sirius? Yeah, it wasn't until they hit Sirius and um because Chaz, you know, ordinary spacer Chaz, who actually is semi-based on a real person, 
of the same name. <laughs> um, when I put him in the story originally, because I, I had, you know, Hank and Chaz, and originally I wasn't sure what sex Chaz was going to be. It was going to be a guy or a gal. All right. And there were a number of people who said, oh, you got to make it a gal. You got to make it a gal. And I was like, no, I think I'm going to make it a little different. Because I, I think it adds a little something to the story. Yeah. And, okay, so now I got Chaz. And he's he's kind of sort of the new guy in some ways. He is very, on certain things, because where he grew up, he's a little naive about it. Right. Uh, and I think that comes up. But he knows the business. He knows the yeah. business really well because he's grown up in this business. Where Dave hasn't grown up in this business, he's learning it. But he's not naive on the other things at all. Right. And so when Chaz is like, okay, I want you to meet the family. And we've heard a few things about his family by then. Okay, now i got to flesh out the family. Right. And, okay, now he's going to meet the family. And, uh, you know, Casey just decides to latch on to him. She sees something and she's like, grabs onto him and then they quickly basically it's a whirlwind remand uh, whirlwind remand remands romance yep. romance i'll get the word out <laughs> and you know i've seen that so yeah. there are people say those things don't happen well you know we just did our 27th they happen right. <laughs> and so i decided to you know it just Sometimes the stories go a little differently than you expect. So I always leave a little wiggle room and I'm always willing to rewrite a plot if I have to. Yeah, Very cool. Yeah, the, the, uh, there's, it seems to me that the, the familiar relationships are extremely important to all of the characters uh, uh, in here, which is, seems to me to be natural uh, and, and right but also uh, gives you a lot of story hooks that you might not otherwise have because it's all about who, who you know and, and that kind of thing, especially when you're out there beyond the reach of anybody else to, to get help. So, Yeah, I mean, I grew up in the 60s and the 70s. Um, I lived on an island, you know, not a small island, but still spent a lot of time in the ocean, a lot of time at, in recreational stuff. Mostly, you know, go out on the ocean. So I, I've been, a, I grew up on boats. I learned to walk on a boat because my dad had a cabin cruiser for a long time. Uh, and that whole community, people understand that the boating community, especially the old boating community, the fishing community, right? all the old salts, there is, uh, it's a certain kind of vibe, a certain kind of life. And when I was living in California, I eventually I used to work with a friend of mine on his mine and I eventually gold mine and I eventually bought in a partnership for a while. And again, the gold mine community is a very different community with the way it works and the way people interact and stuff. And you see these kind of things and this, you know, some of it's a trust kind of community and some of it's just. You have to know the dance kind of thing. And once people know that you're one of them, you're one of them. And in, you know, I, I've known people who were merchant marine. And I know people who a long time ago had traveled on tramp steamers and stuff like that and, and the things that go on. So it, it's definitely a very different lifestyle in certain ways because you are away. You have to depend right. on each other. There's no one that's going to come and bail you out. Even today. If you're out in the middle of the ocean, there's a storm going on. Right, you are on yeah. your own. Yep. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's anybody who's on the sharp end, and you end up having to, you know, he may be an asshole, but he's my asshole, and he's the one that I know will reach down and, and pull me up to, to safety uh, in the dire straits. Uh, yeah. So yeah, the family kind of uh, mentality, or the uh, uh, us versus everything. Yeah. You, uh, once you become one of us and not one of them. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so in a similar vein, which character from Summer's End would you want to avoid like the plague and why? You know, I haven't really fleshed the guy out too much, but it'd probably be the guy who's the head of the, Ven the Venetian Moral Collective, the Venusian Moral Collective. Because there are some characters who I don't like per se, but we haven't seen a lot of screen time on them, so they haven't fleshed out too much. Um, there were a couple who got their comeuppance as we see the things that happened to them. Right. Um but I haven't established any one solid, you know, one single solitary bad guy. 
beyond that dictator. Right. Um, and you just know he's bad news. And you just know that he probably doesn't even realize it or care. He thinks he's probably as pure as the driven snow. Right. Which is part of the problem, part of what makes him odious. <laughs> yeah. Is it just that lack of awareness, self-awareness. Uh, so which character would you want as an ally? Um, you know, there's a couple of them. Hank is a strong ally. You know, um, the Marsies are that way. You know, just the Marsy people and especially the Marsy Navy, the Mars Navy's people. They're like, you know, hang together, do or die. They're like your um, Marines almost, you know. These are the guys who once they've been that, they're that for the rest of their life. And they will always help out a brother kind of a deal. Right. So he's he's definitely one. That's another one you want in your corner. Um she may not overextend herself for you, but if she's going to do it, you know she's going to do it. Right. You know, once she's made the commitment, the commitment is made. Um, so, I mean, those are probably the first two. There are some others. I mean, Marcus is a real solid guy once he knows that he can count on you, but he's got other things that he has to take care of first. Right. Other priorities. So if you're messing, if you're in the way of those priorities, oh, well, sorry, you know, right. priorities got to come first. Okay, so uh, Summer's End not uh, has not only believable technology, but the, uh, you even put in the certifications required to crew uh, and the cost savings measures companies and crews get up to uh, <coughs> so that they make sense for uh, a lay person who doesn't have necessarily an engineering background or anything like that. Uh, did you do some research with wet navies for this? You mentioned the merchant marine and that kind of thing. Uh, some, did- there was a, there was some research that was done on some aspects. Um, a lot of the boarding actions, especially Jim Curtis, helped me with those as former Navy. I've known though, I've known quite a few squids over the years, um, but he really understands the lo- the logistics and the legalities behind boarding operations, right. which is really cool because he he filled me on on a whole bunch of stuff that I was totally unaware of. The Merchant Marine stuff. I mean, my brother's actually a licensed captain. Now he doesn't drive any big boats. He drove the New York City Fire Department boat in the harbor he was one of the he was one of the guys driving that but he also used to crew in the summers uh on a like a three-masted schooner he was the first mate down in the bahamas he used to do that for a while on on his vacation days because my brother loves sailboats yeah um so i've picked up some of that stuff from some of these people and i've been on a couple of working boats over the years and then you understand just like accounting and, and everything else and there was some research the ships themselves are all based on um, actual container cargo ships that are in service today. Hmm. I use the weights, the size, you know, the dead weight tonnage, how many uh, containers they carry. You know, there's the Panamax, which is what the Iowa Hill is. There's the new Panamax, which is for the new gates, because everything was built to go through the gates. Then you got the one, I mean, the, the Panama Canal, and the, the gates on the um, locks. Yep. Then you've got some of the bigger ones, like the Merck or whatever, and I can't remember the different classes, um, but ones that are so big that they can't go through the Panama Canal, right? which limits to where they can go and how many. And then I sat down and did the math. I have some, I know how much it weighs. I know how much I want to accelerate it. How much energy is that going to cost? Okay, how efficient are these engines? What's the efficiency rating? So how much am I going to lose? Right. Okay, now I know how much power. What am I going to use for power? I decided to go with the pressurized vessel submarine reactors. Um, I forget what they're called at the moment. There's a specific name for them. It's, I think I mentioned it in the book somewhere. Yeah, you do. Yeah. And so we start off with those. Well, technologies come up. How have, we, how have they made these things better? How have we improved these? What's the life cycle on these? How long can, you know, do they have to be reloaded? How many times can be reloaded because they're too radioactive and they got to scrap them? So I figured all that out, and then it's like, okay, what's the overhead that we need to be safe? Um, and then what do we have for backup power? I mean, it never gets mentioned, but there's even solar arrays that can be deployed in a worst-case scenario. So at least you have enough power to run your nav lights and maybe a radio. Right. Yeah. So. Well, that that was one of the things that shined through in this that I was reading it. It all seemed that uh, it, it, you'd done your homework. But you managed to make include it in part of the story rather than just you know uh, slapping me in the, over the head with how much you know, uh, which is uh, was a real pleasure for me because again as a layman who's not you know aware of uh, uh, 
you know, all the technicalities, it was neat to be, have this window into this world uh, that was believable. Uh, we talked before we started here about, you know, the, one of our, my favorite scenes in, in film is the, the whole bit in Alien where they're talking about shop steward rules and all that kind of thing, with what they were required to do, what they weren't, and shares and that kind of stuff. And all of that, uh, you know, resonated for me within uh, Summer's End. I just really uh, dug how the crew of the Iowa Hill interacted and uh, and why they were interacting uh, and the the um, the time it takes to learn to to uh, up your skillage to become practiced at uh, certain aspects and everything. All of that was really believable to me and uh, really uh, interesting for me. Um, and again, I, I praise you on the research level and also on the, uh, the, the a way you doled it out rather than smothering the baby with or the story with all of this knowledge that uh, uh, you could have possibly uh, buried yeah. in. Too, too many people will do that. I've seen they, they, they too put out too much stuff. Um, I have one rule I have is I never develop any technology if I'm developing a new technology until I absolutely need it in the book. And I never explain anything until I absolutely have to in the book, because otherwise you can get yourself in a corner. Right. And you have to believe that everything you're talking about is ambiguous. It's in the world around everyone. So people don't talk about it all the time. Hey, you know how they make the red dye for this shirt? You know, right. I'm not going to tell anyone around about that. Yeah. These so you these things have to come up and you have to kind of sometimes set the conversation and I've seen it in a lot of professions where there are skill and time requirements. You have to do so much time and so much yep. like a pilot's license, yep. you know, to get different certifications. You got to have so much time and so many particular things and you have to do all these different things so you can get to the next cert. Then you take the test, whatever that test may be. Um, and you, you see it in a lot of different um, trade industries like that, right. you know, with, with tradesmen and stuff. Uh, Plumbers have that, you know, electricians. Yeah, police officers. Police officers yeah. have the police officer standards and training here in California. And also, I think they have it in Texas as well. Every state has its own and they're trying to get on a national standard kind of thing. But yeah, it's, uh, uh, it, it, again, it resonated for me just for that reason. You know, it's it, it, to be a, a bonded person and, you know, have the, the, uh, the knowledge base isn't enough. You have to actually, uh, you know, get the certifications and how you go about that. Uh, and also how that becomes part of the story was really, it was neat. It was very impressive to me. Uh, it, it harkened back to uh, kind of the, uh, the older uh, space stories that I've, I've read or the, the, their settings are more in a, in a near space capacity kind of thing rather than, you know, having control of gravitics and that kind of thing. So again, yeah. very cool. Yeah. I, like I said, I grew up on Heinlein and with all that stuff, I mentioned that earlier and a lot of near space stuff and I, I still have a, a soft spot for near space alan Steele's one of my favorite near space authors who's currently writing and the technology aspect again too because i'm an engineer and i've done aerospace stuff a lot of that has helped too because you, you see the interactions because you know i i was a flight test engineer for quite a few years so you know i'm out there at the airfield with the crews the flight crews the test people the maintenance people and we're out all around the craft and doing all the stuff and you know, if there's a problem, okay, I got to go out there and I got to pull all this gear off or I got to get a guy to help me to pull the gear off because maybe I'm not allowed to pull that gear off. And, right. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, there are vast shading into dystopian inequities and wealth and power in Summer's End. Uh, is, the big, is the book a bit of a prophetic vision for you or uh, how things <clears throat> should continue or, or the way they have been or is, was it just a cool setting? Or I think it's good. I think what I did with the with the Earth and with society on the Earth, I think that's pretty prophetic. I, I do think that we're heading down that path right now, based on history and everything else. I think that's where forces are pushing us. Whether or not that's the way it will really go, I don't know. But that's the path I see us on at the moment. There are things that could change that, but you know, it's it's really really hard to say. Um, you can only you can really only guess so much when it comes to the future. I know it's not the future I would like to see, right? Though I do believe if someone ever discovers, you know, understands gravity enough to make a constant gravity drive, I really think if it was easy enough to make, uh, it didn't require some ridiculous amount of stuff to do, that we'd probably see 
the same thing happened to the solar system in the book. Everybody would go out there and they'd start forming their own little enclaves and societies and countries. And, you know, hey, we'll push our asteroid off where no one will find us and we can just be self-sufficient, do our own thing. And we'll do a little trade when we need to get what we don't have. Right. Neat. So uh, Summer's End has many characters with tough backgrounds. Did you plan this as you set out to write the story or did it result from the characters kind of speaking to you? Uh, some of it result from the characters speaking to, but also because it's the merchant marine. And these aren't the big merchant marines. These are the guys who, who go to all the small ports. All Because, you know, you can't compete when you're a small shipping company by going to the major ports because all the big ships tie up everything. It's almost like truck driving, you know, the, the trucker thing. The big truck uh, companies, they tie up all the major stuff. So the independents, the wildcats, I've known some of those. These guys have to pick up loads where they can. They're on the road more and trying to figure out how to make that all pay so they don't deadhead a lot with empty stuff. Right. And so pretty much I'm looking at that as well as the old tramp steamer thing where, okay, we got to go places where the big guys don't go because there's not enough money in it. There's not enough cargo in it. Things are too rough. Maybe the facilities aren't there. It may not be safe. Because, you know, you're going to all these little small ports, like you're sailing around the South Pacific and all the little islands and everything. Yep. So that kind of enhanced the crew and some of the people to be a little more tough, especially the ones who are outward facing. Because, right. you know, uh, the cook isn't tough. Uh, you know, the uh, second mate, she's not tough. The first mate we kind of thought was tough. Mm, he's That's still out to question. Um, so, you know... Some of the people are tough. Some of them aren't. But that's why a guy like Hank is on board. You know, he's he's got the experience. He was a bosun's mate. Right. And I don't know if you've ever met a bosun's mate, but you do not want to fuck with a bosun's yeah, mate. Yeah, well, and, and you know, it reminded me some of the some of the behaviors or uh, the way of dealing with stuff was uh, the Lescar uh, kind of uh, sailors from you know the, from distant lands who may not have had a whole lot of talent to do a whole lot of anything, but they learned the ropes and knew how to do things. And when they were push came to shove, they were <clears throat> very capable of mayhem. <laughs> oh, I, I used to know, I didn't know him very long. He was a friend of a friend. I hung out with this guy for about a, six months to a year. I knew him and he had been the bosun's mate on the Missouri. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, the stories he told about, setting people straight and you know cleaning people's acts up and stuff like that on a ship that big and a ship that's like the pride of the navy and there's our standards to be upheld oh it was hysterical it was the things he did oh <laughs> funny funny stories so, the biggest well, line he used to say and I, I didn't use this in the story and i don't know if all bosun's mates use this line but he goes who has the sharpest knife on the deck the bosun's mate <laughs> they are or I do. <laughs> um, so the events taking on place on Venus, uh, I, I'm hoping that we'll get to um, more of a firsthand account of those in a future work. Uh, yeah, there's, I, there's definitely going to be more of a run in in the next book with the people from, you know, the VMC. <laughs> they will be coming out more. We'll be seeing more of them because that kind of... Um, political society thing, you know, those people always have to spread because, well, there's somebody who's wrong. We can't have that. Right. We, we can't have somebody who's wrong. Uh, and we've already, by the end of the book, we've seen the lengths they're willing to go to on a number of things. And we also see the lengths that certain people are willing to go to say, you know, we need to take out some insurance just in case. Right. Um, so, yeah, well, we haven't seen the last of them. Good deal. I'm excited if that's the case because uh, they seem to be a good uh, uh, a good foil for uh, pointing out more of how the universe works. <laughs> so, uh, just a, a kind of more uh, uh, an interesting question or an individual question is uh, from my from me. Uh, why no cats, no motorcycles? Uh, from your website, I'd have thought there would be a, a scene or two at least that dealt I've with. Used, I've used cats in way too many books of late. Um, one of my big indie series is all about, uh, you know, lycanthropes. 
that was under my pen name, uh, you know, Jan Strivent. And I mean, 18 books in the first series, and I'm working on book six or seven of, of the follow-on series. And there are cats in that. And I've used them in other things, too. And I figured it was getting a bit played. I like big cats because I've had them. I, I especially like leopards. They're my favorite. Most trainers are afraid of them. I love them. We get along. Um, you know, I've raised lions and stuff. The only big cat I've never really raised that I've worked with are tigers. And, but it, I felt I was overdoing it. And as far as motorcycles, there just really wasn't a place for it in the story. Yeah. There just really, really wasn't. And uh, so they didn't really get stuck in just mostly because of that reason. Cool. Uh, so my penultimate question tonight is what, aside from its raw entertainment value, do you hope readers will carry with them long after reading Summer's End? That's a tough one because my first goal as an author is to be an entertainer and to entertain people and make them smile and make them. But I do want to make them think, but I'm not trying to preach. I'm not trying to you know preach to people. Um, I think some of the idea is just that, you know, you can always make your way. And where you are now does not guarantee what you will be in the future. And just because you may have a dark past or have a history of having done some bad things, um, you can rise above that. You know, there, there are always choices you can make and always improvements you can do. And there's always a better life out there if you're willing to work for it. You know, if, if you're willing to make the change. Now, at one point in my life, I really was not happy where everything was going in my life. So I moved. 3,000 miles. And I only knew one person where I moved. Didn't know anybody else. I didn't have a job. And I had kind of a promised job that fell through. So I just packed everything up and left. And I did that. I mean, moving here to Texas, where I am now, I just got fed up with the way things were going in California. And I could see the writing on the wall. I was like, that's it. You know, 60 days later, I bought a house in, Cal in, in Texas from the time I said we're moving. In 60 days, I closed and Two months, you know, a month later, I was gone. And two months later, my you know, my spouse was gone. And that was it. Uh, you got to just be willing to sit there and say, you know what? I can make friends wherever I go. I can make a good life wherever I can go. You just have to be willing to say, I'm not happy with this state of affairs. And I'm not going to stick with it. I'm, and sometimes you have to change the people in your life, especially if they're dragging you down. Um, I've known people who were alcoholics and, and drug addicts, and for them, the thing that saved them was they, they literally got away from the people they were with who kept dragging them down, and they went someplace else. And for Dave, that's part of it. Dave has two things. He wants to, he, he wants to better himself, but he wants to live in a place that he enjoys. He wants to live in a better society. You know, His original path he was on as a kid was a pretty destructive path. Right. You know, and sooner or later that would have caught up with them. You know, well, and the, the, the other thing that kind of shines through in this too is, is that uh, just because you have a bad past doesn't mean that you can't use those skills for uh, that you learn dealing with that negative, uh, you know, history to yeah. better yourself in the future. And, and that's also very true. I mean, I grew up in New York and I spent a lot of time in New York City. And um, yeah, I've done some things I'm not proud of. But you learn from it and you start to learn how to deal with certain situations and deal with certain people. And when you run into certain kinds of people and you act a certain way, they realize that if they're going to throw down, they're not going to walk away unhurt. They're going to get hurt and they may get hurt real bad. And for a lot of the bad characters in the world, these people are not terribly brave. Right. You know, they're not morally strong. And you could say that a lot of them are cowards and they're definitely lazy and they're not going to go up against somewhere, something where they have a chance of losing. Um, and that's, yeah, one of the things Dave has all these skills from things he did when he was a kid until he got set on the quote unquote straight and narrow, if you want to call it that. And as things start going on because of things from his past, he has no control over. There are some things that he has to deal with, but he has, you know, the strength to deal with it because he knows what to do. Right. In some ways, he's, I guess he's like a Heinlein hero. He can rise to the challenge. Very cool. And, uh, so, yeah, the, the hope is that people will recognize it doesn't matter where you, what you're coming from. 
if you decide to make a change, you can make a change. Yeah, you gotta have faith in yourself. That's a good. That's a good way to uh, to be. I think is to <laughs> kind of know that you can make a better change if you're willing to sacrifice for it. So, uh, last question: What conventions can your fans hope to catch up with you at, and what other work do you have in the pipeline for your fans to read? Okay, um, I go to Liberty Con in Chattanooga. Um, that's the only convention I reliably make. Uh, I may start going to FenCon again here in Texas, it's in Dallas. <clears throat> There's a convention in Tulsa. I went last year. I might go this coming year. I haven't quite decided. I used to go to a lot of conventions, but in the last few years, I kind of backed off. So I don't really know for sure how many conventions I'll go to because unless I'm there to meet people who I know, conventions don't really hold a lot for me because I can't learn anything there at this point because I've been to all the writers workshops and everything you could possibly be. So for a lot of that, it, that drawer is kind of gone. And plus I know so many authors these days that if I want to talk to them, I can just pick up the phone or send them an email. Right. It's not like I have to go to a convention to meet these people. Um, I suppose if, if I get more popular again, you know, with people who go to conventions, cause I have a lot of fans from my indie work, right. but most of those people don't go to conventions, which is kind of wild. Um, some go to Liberty Con because, you know, they're, they're connected. But to, to do as well as I have and you go to a convention, it's like nobody's read your stuff. It's kind of a downer. <laughs> I, I call it a lesson in humility. Eh, <laughs> the signings try, especially are I try really hard not to be an asshole. I don't even do signings. unless yeah. I unless The only one I've done so far is because Tony asked me to. And I really, you know, I, I just don't want to do them because uh, I don't. I don't know. I don't feel that I'm that big. It's only when I look at my royalties sometimes I'm going, holy shit. <laughs> it's kind That's of not a bad place to be at. When I start getting emails from Navy SEALs and artillerymen about stuff, about, hey, what's the story with this and the story? I'm like, oh, man. <laughs> Well, those, yeah, that's uh, another place, good place to go is uh, for Liberty Con is also very good for that. Uh, you can connect with all sorts of folks, tankers, engineers, NASA, NASA scientists, yeah. uh, cops, <laughs> uh, and all sorts of uh, folks, nuclear engineers as well. So, there's, uh, yeah, it sounds like this at uh, Liberty Con. If you're going to go to one convention, it's probably not <clears throat> a bad one to go to. Um, as for what's in the pipeline, um, what I'm working on immediately, I just finished uh, my under my pen name, Valens Heritage Series. I promised my fans I'd write a bunch of those, and they're paying the bills. They're doing really well. I just finished one. I'm waiting for cover art. I'm going to start another one tomorrow. I'm supposed to start it today. Once that's done, the sequel to Summer's End will be written. Um, I did manage to sell Tony on two series that I want to do for Bane, about four to six book series. I have, I gave her the plots. I haven't completely plotted. Well, Wolfhounds is completely plotted out and that's a science fiction story, but it's a science fiction space opera kind of story. So, and mill sci-fi. So space opera, mill sci-fi. Um, the other one, I don't even have a title for yet, but it's a combination of um, like cyberpunk and um, what you call it runner. Um, the Seattle one. Uh, damn, I can't remember the name of it. But that kind of uh, genre. I'm, I'm melding two genres. Uh, Shadowrun. That's right. Shadowrun. Oh, yeah. Shadow Shadow Run. Run. And I, I have a, a world and a story because it's a trilogy I wrote that is actually available on Bane's website. The um, Days of Future Past trilogy. And huh? no, I did not steal that from the cartoon. I stole it from the same place they did. <laughs> And they did steal it. Right. Um, well, titles titles can't be stolen, so we're good. I didn't even know if I had known that it was out there when I that the Marvel thing or whatever was out there. I would have changed the title because I didn't. I didn't know right. though. Right. But it's that world about 150, 200 years in the future. So there's a lot of dystopia that's coming back because I think we are ready for a new genre or a, a resurgence of an old genre. Right. Um, I have done that twice now in my career, in my indie career, and been very successful with it each time because I really don't want to go where everybody else has been. I want to do something a little different and take a new look at stuff. 
and try to give some people something different to enjoy. Well, I certainly enjoyed Summer's End, and I appreciate you taking some time out from your, sounds like, very busy schedule to talk with us today. Uh, This has been the Bain Free Radio Radio Hour with John Van Stry talking about Summer's End. And now we bring you Timothy Zahn's Cobra. Earth's only hope was the Cobras. The colony world's Adirondack and Silvern fell to the troughed forces almost without a struggle. Outnumbered and on the defensive, Earth made a desperate decision. It would attack the aliens not from space, but on the ground, with forces the troughs did not even suspect. Thus were created the Cobras, a guerrilla force whose weapons were surgically implanted, invisible to the unsuspecting eye, yet undeniably deadly. But power brings temptation, and not all the Cobras could be trusted to fight for Earth alone. Johnny Moreau would learn the uses and abuses of his special abilities and what it truly meant to be a Cobra. Jamie paused outside the door, took a single deep breath, and knocked lightly. There was no answer. He raised his hand to knock again, then thought better of it. After all, it was his bedroom, too. Opening the door, he went in. Seated at Jamie's writing desk, hands curled into fists in front of him, Johnny was staring out the window. Jamie cleared his throat. Hello, Jamie, Johnny said without turning. Hi. The desk Jamie saw was covered with official-looking mag forms. I just dropped by to tell you the dinner will be ready in about 15 minutes. He nodded at the desk. What are you up to? Filling out some college applications. Oh, decided to go back to school? Johnny shrugged. I might as well. Stepping to his brother's side, Jamie scanned the mag forms. University of Rajput, Bamu Technical Institute on Zimbabwe, University of Airy, all off-planet. You're going to have a long way to travel when you come home for Christmas, he commented. Another fact caught his eye. All three applications were filled out only up to the space marked military service. I don't expect to come home very often, Johnny said quietly. You're just going to give up, huh? Jamie put as much scorn into the words as he could. It had no effect. I'm retreating from enemy territory, Johnny corrected mildly. The kids are dead, Johnny. There's nothing in the universe you can do about it. Look, the town doesn't blame you. No charges were brought, remember? So quit blaming yourself. Accept the fact of what happened and let go of it. You're confusing legal and moral guilt. Legally, I'm clear. Morally, no. And the town's not going to let me forget it. I can see the disgust and fear in people's eyes. They're even afraid to be sarcastic to me anymore. Well, it's better than not getting any respect at all. Johnny snorted. Thanks a lot, he said wryly. I'd rather be picked on. A sign of life at last. Jamie pressed ahead, afraid of losing the spark. You know, Dadder and I have been talking about the shop. You remember that we didn't have enough equipment for three workers? Yes, and you still don't. Right, but what stops us from having you and Dadder run the place while I go out and work somewhere else for a few months? Johnny was silent for a moment, but then shook his head. Thanks, but no. It wouldn't be fair. Why not? That job used to be yours. It's not like you were butting in. Actually, I'd kind of like to try something else for a while. I'd probably drive away all the customers if I was there. Jamie's lip twisted. That won't fly and you know it. Dadder's customers are there because they like him and his work. They don't give two hoots who handles the actual repairs as long as Dadder supervises everything. You're just making excuses. Johnny closed his eyes briefly. And what if I am? I suppose it doesn't matter to you right now whether or not you let your life go down the drain, Jamie gritted. But you might take a moment to consider what you're doing to Gwen. Yeah. The other kids are pretty hard on her, aren't they? I'm not referring to them. Sure, she's lost most of her friends, but there are a couple who are sticking by her. What's killing her is having to watch her big brother tearing himself to shreds. Johnny looked up for the first time. What do you mean? Just what I said? She's been putting up a good front for your sake, but the rest of us know how much it hurts her to see the brother she adores sitting in his room and... He groped for the right words. Wallowing in self-pity? Yeah. You owe her better than that, Johnny. She's already lost most of her friends. She deserves to keep her brother. 
Johnny looked back out the window for a long moment, then glanced down at the college applications. You're right. He took a deep breath, let it out slowly. Okay. You can tell Dadder he's got himself a new worker, he said, collecting the mag forms together into a neat pile. I'll start whenever he's ready for me. Jamie grinned and gripped his brother's shoulder. Thanks, he said quietly. Can I tell Mommer and Gwen, too? Sure. No, just Mommer. He stood up and gave Jamie a passable attempt at a smile. I'll go tell Gwen myself. The tiny spot of bluish light, brilliant even through the decontrast goggles, crawled to the edge of the metal and vanished. Pushing up the goggles, Johnny set the laser down and inspected the seam. Spotting a minor flaw, he corrected it and then began removing the fender from its clamps. He had not quite finished the job when a gentle buzz signaled that a car had pulled into the drive. Grimacing, Johnny took off his goggles and headed for the front of the shop. Mayor Stillman was out of his car and walking toward the door when Johnny emerged from the building. "'Hello, Johnny,' he smiled, holding out his hand with no trace of hesitation. "'How are you doing?' Fine, Mr. Stillman, Johnny said, feeling awkward as he shook hands. He'd been working here for three weeks now, but still didn't feel comfortable dealing directly with his father's customers. Dadder's out right now. Can I help you with something? Stillman shook his head. I really just dropped by to say hello to you and to bring you some news. I heard this morning that Wyatt Brothers Contracting is putting together a group to demolish the old Lamplighter Hotel. Would you be interested in applying for a job with them? No, I don't think so. I'm doing okay here right now. But thanks for... He was cut off by a dull thunderclap. What was that? Stillman asked, glancing at the cloudless sky. Explosion, Johnny said curtly, eyes searching the southwest sky for evidence of fire. For an instant he was back on Adirondack. A big one, southwest of us. There. He pointed to a thin plume of smoke that had suddenly appeared. Uh, the cesium extractor, I'll bet, Stillman muttered. Damn. Come on, let's go. The deja vu vanished. I can't go with you, Johnny said. Never mind the shop. No one will steal anything. Stillman was already getting into his car. But there would be crowds there. I just can't. This is no time for shyness, the mayor snapped. If that blast really was all the way over at the extraction plant, there's probably one hell of a fire there now. They might need our help. Come on. Johnny obeyed. The smoke plume, he noted, was growing darker by the second. Stillman was right on all counts. The four-story cesium extraction plant was indeed burning furiously as they roared up to the edge of the growing crowd of spectators. The patrollers and fireters were already there, the latter pouring a white liquid through the doors and windows of the building. The flames Johnny saw as he and the mayor pushed through the crowd seemed largely confined to the first floor, the entire floor was burning, however, with flames extending even a meter or two onto the ground outside the building. Clearly the fire was being fueled by one or more liquids. The two men had reached one of the patrollers now. "'Keep back, folks,' he began. "'I'm Mayor Stillman.' Stillman identified himself. "'What can we do to help?' "'Just keep back. "'No, wait a second. "'You can help us string a cordon line.' There could be another explosion any time, and we've got to keep these people back. The stuff's over there. The stuff consisted of thin, bottom-weighted poles and a bright red cord to string between them. Stillman and Johnny joined three patrollers who were in the process of setting up the line. How'd it happen? Stillman asked as they worked, shouting to make himself heard over the roar of the flames. Witnesses say a tank of iaphanine got ruptured somehow and ignited, one of the patrollers shouted back. Before they could put it out, the heat set off another couple of tanks. I guess they had a few hundred kiloliters of the damned stuff in there. It's used in the refining process, and the whole lot went up at once. It's a wonder the building's still standing. Anyone still in there? Yeah, half a dozen or so, third floor. Johnny turned, squinting against the light. Sure enough, he could see two or three anxious faces at a partially open third-floor window. Directly below them, Cedar Lake's single Skyhooker fire truck had been driven to within a cautious ten meters of the building and was extending its ladder upwards. Johnny turned back to the cordon line. The blast was deafening, and Johnny's nanocomputer reacted by throwing him flat on the ground. Twisting around to face the building, 
He saw that a large chunk of wall a dozen meters from the working fireters had been disintegrated by the explosion. In its place was now a solid sheet of blue-tinged yellow flame. Fortunately, none of the fireters seemed to have been hurt. Oh, hell, a patroller said as Johnny scrambled to his feet. Look at that. A piece of the wall had apparently winged the skyhooker's ladder on its way to oblivion. One of the uprights had been mangled, causing the whole structure to sag to the side. Even as the fireters hurriedly brought it down, the upright snapped, toppling the ladder to the ground. "'Damn,' Stillman muttered. "'Do they have another ladder long enough?' "'Not when it has to sit that far from the wall,' the patroller gritted. "'I don't think the public works tall trucks can reach that high either.' "'Maybe we can get a hoverplane from Horizon City,' Stillman said, a hint of desperation creeping into his voice. "'They haven't got time.' Johnny pointed at the second-floor windows. "'The fire's already on the second floor. Something's got to be done right away.' The fireters had apparently come to the same conclusion and were pulling one of their other ladders from its rack on the skyhooker. "'Looks like they're going to try to reach the second floor and work their way to the third from inside,' the patroller muttered. "'That's suicide,' Stillman shook his head. "'Isn't there any place they can set up airbags close enough to let the men jump?' The answer to that was obvious, and no one bothered to voice it. If the fireters could have done that, they would have already done so. Clearly, the flames extended too far from the building for that to work. "'Do we have any strong rope?' Johnny asked suddenly. "'I'm sure I could throw one end of it to them.' "'But they'd slide down into the fire,' Stillman pointed out. "'Not if you anchored the bottom end fifteen or twenty meters away, tied it to one of the fire trucks, say. Come on, let's go talk to one of the fireters.' They found the fire chief and the group trying to set up the new ladder. "'It's a nice idea, but I doubt if all of the men up there could make it down a rope.' He frowned after Johnny had sketched his plan. They've been in smoke and terrific heat for nearly a quarter hour now and are probably getting close to collapse. Do you have anything like a breeches buoy? Johnny asked. It's like a sling with a pulley that slides on a rope. The chief shook his head. Look, I haven't got any more time to waste here. We've got to get our men inside right away. You can't send men into that, Stillman objected. The whole second floor must be on fire by now. That's why we have to hurry, damn it. Johnny fought a brief battle with himself. But, as Stillman had said, this was no time to be shy. There's another way. I can take a rope to them along the outside of the building. What? How? You'll see. I'll need at least thirty meters of rope, a pair of insulated gloves, and about ten strips of heavy cloth. Now! The tone of command, once learned, was not easily forgotten. Nor was it easy to resist and within a minute Johnny was standing beneath his third-floor target window, as close to the building as the flames permitted. The rope, tied firmly around his waist, trailed behind him, kept just taut enough to ensure that it, too, stayed out of the fire. Taking a deep breath, Johnny bent his knees and jumped. Three years of practice had indeed made perfect. He caught the window ledge at the top of his arc, curled up feet taking the impact against red-hot brick. In a single smooth motion, he pulled himself through the half-open window and into the building. The fire chief's guess about the heat and smoke had been correct. The seven men lying or sitting on the floor of the small room were so groggy they weren't even startled by Johnny's sudden appearance. Three were already unconscious, alive but just barely. The first task was to get the window completely open. It was designed, Johnny saw, to only open halfway, the metal frame of the upper section firmly joined to the wall. A few carefully placed laser shots into the heat-softened metal did the trick, and a single kick popped the pane neatly and sent it tumbling to the ground. Moving swiftly now, Johnny untied the rope from his waist and fastened it to a nearby stanchion, tugging three times on it to alert the fireters below to take up the slack. Hoisting one of the unconscious men to a more or less vertical position, he tied a strip of cloth to the man's left wrist, tossed the other end over the slanting rope, and tied it to the man's right wrist. With a quick glance outside to make sure the fireters were ready, he lifted the man through the window and let him slide down the taut rope into the waiting arms below. Johnny didn't wait to watch them cut him loose, but went immediately to the second unconscious man. Parts of the floor were beginning to smolder by the time the last man disappeared out the window. Tossing one more cloth strip over the rope, Johnny gripped both ends with his right hand and jumped. The wind of his passage felt like an arctic blast on his sweaty skin, and he found himself shivering as he reached the ground. Letting go of the cloth, he stumbled a few steps away. 
and heard a strange sound. The crowd was cheering. He turned to look at them, wondering, and it finally dawned on him that they were cheering for him. Unbidden, an embarrassed smile crept onto his face, and he raised his hand shyly in acknowledgement. And then Mayor Stillman was at his side, gripping Johnny's arm and smiling broadly. You did it, Johnny! You did it! He shouted over all the noise. Johnny grinned back. With half of Cedar Lake watching, he'd saved seven men and had risked his life doing it. They'd seen that he wasn't a monster, that his abilities could be used constructively, and most importantly, that he wanted to be helpful. Down deep, he could sense that this was a potential turning point. Maybe, just maybe, things would be different for him now. That was another installment in Timothy Zahn's Cobra, and that's it for the podcast. Thanks, as always, to Audible.com and podcast theme composer Ruth Judkiewicz. Praise, thanks, and gratitude, and welcome aboard to John Van Stry, and good night, Tony Daniel, wherever you are. This is David F. Shirerod coming to you from a soundproof bunker somewhere deep in the heart of Texas. Join us here next week at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars. Thank you.